chapter three. Beyond the Body, The Human Double in the Astral Plane by Benjamin Walker. Esoteric Physiology. Having put forward the proposition that a non-physical entity functions behind the scenes of the physical body, the next step is to find out how the two entities, physical and non-physical, belonging to two different spheres, are connected, and how they interact. The suggestion that the two are related as substance and shadow, or that there exists a psychophysical parallelism coordinated by some pre-established harmony, although put forward by some preeminent thinkers, is not endorsed by any tradition. One answer to the problem, which receives support from personal experience at many cultural levels, is that there exists an area where the two actually meet. And the study of that area forms the subject matter of esoteric physiology. Uh, Using a stock analogy, the physical body might be compared to an intricate mechanism. It has many facets, but only one is of interest to the physiologist, for he is concerned with no other. But according to the cosmobiologist, who studies the influence of cosmic phenomena on living things, the human mechanism is equipped with clocks and meters of various kinds, which though invisible, are of great precision, and we would be underrating the body's many marvelous attributes if we judged it by reading the dial on the single visible face. Our body is a complex of wonders, and more and more wonders, of which the conscious mind is unaware, are being ascribed to it. Intensive modern research has shown that it registers in response to a hundred obscure environmental factors such as, a, such as rhythmic changes in humidity, light and temperature, gravitation, barometric pressure, the passage of time, ionization, magnetic and electric fields, planetary, lunar, solar and stellar influences, cosmic rays, and other phenomena that are beyond the range of our five senses. More and more refined instruments are being devised to reveal more and more refinements of the body's incredible reception of and reaction to stimuli coming from without. The intricacies of the body's mechanism and its relationship to the environment are still largely obscure, and scientists are hesitant to postulate the existence of a pacemaker controlling the organism in case they unwittingly conjure up another ghost. We receive a constant spate of information from our surroundings, most of it channeled through some other system than the senses, for the function of the senses seems to be to reduce the impact of external stimuli. Our senses keep out more than they admit to our cognizance. We live in a welter of incoming impressions and are subjected to a great battering from outside, but are insulated against the onslaught by the narrow specialization of our sense organs. Our ears deafen us to much of the cacophony of outside sounds, and our eyes reduce the blinding glare transmitted in the light waves around us. The brain, according to the philosopher Henri Bergson, 
is, or Henry Bergson, is essentially an organ of limitation, its chief function being to filter and canalize the flood of impressions that would otherwise overwhelm us. Our senses allow us only a peep into a limitless panorama. In their own way, the people of ancient and medieval times were equally aware of the marvels of the human body, and in explanation attributed to it and to its organs and natural byproducts a supernatural significance. There's hardly a part of the anatomy that was not assigned to the care of some deity or guardian spirit. Each part was thus cared for, and each had its role in the welfare of the individual because head, heart, eye, tongue, foot, hand, hair, bones, spleen, liver, and other organs performed not only physiological but occult functions. They acquired a special sacrosanctity in the scheme of esoteric physiology. This scheme does not belong to the asomatic symptom to the asomatic system proper, but is rather an extension of the physical body. The esoteric organs depend on the physical for their functioning on the material plane. Nothing so constantly links man with the world around him as breathing. By this means he is ceaselessly taking into his inmost being a part of his immediate environment. Denied the blessing of breath, he would die in seconds. The Hebrew word ruah, the Greek pneuma, the Sanskrit prana, the Latin spiritus mean breath, as well as soul. From early times breath became the theme of a strange mystique. What was taken in when a man breathed was not just air, but a vitalizing aerial substance more important for his survival than food. The ancient Egyptians, Chinese, Indians, Mayas, the Christians of the Middle East, the Persians, and Arabs all evolved highly elaborate systems of breathing sometimes combined with the recitation of spells, all with the sole object of increasing spiritual power. There were different kinds of breath. Different effects were achieved by inhalation and exhalation. There were differences between breathing through the right and left nostrils. Different benefits derived from the hot and the cold air that a man could breathe out in the same single exhalation. Even diseases could be cured by breathing the right way. Among other things, this meant taking in the right kind of air, for the character of the air inhaled was as important as one's diet. Furthermore, functions like sneezing, belching, hiccuping, crepitating, yawning, all being connected with the element of air were also given an occult interpretation. In ancient belief, waters, no less than airs, had magical qualities. In esoteric physiology, the fluids of the body were invested with occult meaning, excuse me, including sweat, tears, saliva, sputum, semen, and above all, blood, which headed the list. 
A mysterious fluid intimately linked with the spirit of man and regarded as his life substance, blood acquired a unique importance in all cultures. The life of the flesh, the Bible says, is in the blood. Within it abides a power that is connected with the spiritual realms, and the vapor of shed blood is a direct link with the next world. Emanuel Swedenborg, the Swedish scientist and mystic, held that the soul of man was a spiritual fluid diffused throughout the body, and that the medium for its diffusion was the blood, which was thus imbued with power from the divine source. On the other hand, the French occultist Eliphas Levi spoke of blood as the astral light made manifest in matter, the astral light in this context being the vital principle of the etheric world. Blood was regarded by all peoples throughout history as a magic substance of tremendous psychic potency and was therefore universally hedged in by taboos. It was the sign of supreme sacrifice. It sealed covenants. It betokened both maidenly virtue and the magic power of virgins. If spilt on the earth, blood cried aloud for vengeance. Havelock Ellis said, There is scarcely any natural object with so profoundly emotional an effect as blood. When we come down to the actual anatomy of the esoteric body, we are confronted with an unusual physiological system, but more surprisingly, we find a general uniformity in the various accounts as given by the different often widely separated peoples of their respective systems. The descriptions tally, whatever the source, although the details sometimes vary, they all conform uh, they all confirm the existence of a quasi-physical body so tenuous as to be invisible and intangible, yet functioning parallel to and in harmonious liaison with the physical body. Basic to the system is a molecular meshing consisting of a fine network of arteries which ramify through his this body, linking all its parts with the physical organism and interlacing with it. Belief in the existence of the subtle arteries, as they are called, can be traced back to most of the great civilizations of the past. The ancient Egyptians taught that the human body was served by a system of 36 radiating channels called metu, which circulated the vital energy to all parts of the body. Their physicians cured ailments of deep-seated organs by manipulating the relevant surface area thought to be connected with it by a metu, and so directing the flow of the vital energy towards the afflicted organ. In Hindo-esoteric physiology, the subtle artery is called a nadi, and the three chief nadis are situated one within and two on either side of the spinal column. These, in turn, branch out into one hundred and one lesser vessels, and these further divide and subdivide into thousands of tiny tubes, forming a network of infinite subtlety. As with the Egyptians, physical disease of an internal organ was treated by manipulating the surface area on the body that was connected to it by a direct nadi. Massaging the back of the ear might, according to this method, relieve a pain in the region of the groin. 
Similarly, in the Chinese system, there are believed to be 12 major meridians in the body, along which the qi, or vital energy flows, and these connect to about 1,000 points on the surface immediately beneath the skin. The precise spot at which each of the 12 major meridians meets the skin is marked out on an anatomical chart, and in case of sickness, the appropriate points are located and pricked with a long needle again diverting the vital flow to where it is needed. This is the principal underlying treatment by acupuncture, which we have already mentioned. The physical body is believed to be linked to the subtle arteries at certain points known as plexuses. Each plexus is a knot of invisible ganglia, which forms a nucleus of vibratory energy, receiving and absorbing radiations from diverse sources and serving as a storage center for the physical, psychic, and cosmic energies concentrated in them. Some occultists maintain that each plexus is the focal point of a separate psychic plane and can be activated for the distribution of the forces belonging to that plane. Each plexus, therefore, opens the passage to a different occult zone. Paracelsus, whose genius touched on many obscure fields of medical doctrine, also spoke of certain centers in the body through which sidereal, stellar, and planetary influences were received, and he named each such center an astrum, Latin, Latin astrum star. According to him, at the moment of a person's birth, the heavenly bodies, which are disposed in their particular positions in the sky at the time, engrave their characteristic marks on the astrums and the pattern thus imprinted determines the future physical appearance, health, character, conduct, and, to that degree, the destiny of the person concerned. It is through these centers, said Paracelsus, Paracelsus that the heavens work in us. The location of Paracelsian astrums in the body correspond very closely to those enumerated by Chinese, Maya, Middle Eastern, and Hindu sources. The Hindus have developed an astonishingly detailed theory of esoteric physiology based on the plexal scheme. In Sanskrit, the term for plexus or astrum is chakra, a word meaning wheel and used in this context because the chakras, when viewed by trained adepts, are found to be shaped like circles or round symmetrical designs. They are described as focuses of swirling astral energy, which serve to energize the vital and mental faculties of man. They resemble saucer-like depressions and turn about rapidly like miniature whirlpools. In most systems, several plexuses are mentioned, situated roughly along an axis whose lower end is near the base of the spine. From this tap root, there rises a stem, which has its efflorescence in the head. Between the topmost plexus in the cranium and the lowest at the tailbone lie the other major plexuses, from five 
to 15 in number, depending on the school. And from these power points, the subtle arteries radiate through the body, like the distributaries of a river, so that the life-bearing energy pervades the whole physical organism. The chief plexuses have frequently been given an equivalence in the physical body. Thus, modern exponents of the chakras, for example, equate them with the adrenal, thyroid, pituitary, and other endocrine glands. The spinal column is usually represented as the main trunk of the chakra scheme, and the chakras are described in ascending order along the spine, starting with the basal chakra and working upwards for progressive spiritual enlightenment. This is in accord with a very ancient concept, for we find that the ancient Egyptians looked too. The ancient Egyptians too looked upon the spine as the ladder of spiritual ascent and a symbol of resurrection for those destined for the realms of the god Osiris. The base of the spine is adjacent to several important areas in occultism. The five small bones near the end of the spine, which are fused together to form the back wall of the pelvis, were regarded as a single structure and called by medieval physiologists the sacrum from the Latin word for sacred, since from earliest times it was thought of as a sacred bone. The early Semites believed that the sacrum contained a mysterious fragment known to the Jews as luz, which they conceived of as a tiny particle, so small that it could not be further reduced in size, nor burned, nor otherwise destroyed. It was supposed to be the nucleus around which the resurrection body would take shape when Gabriel sounded the last trump. Just beneath the sacrum lies the perineum, sometimes said to be the polar opposite of the bregma, which we shall consider shortly. It is situated between the thighs, in the crotch of dichotomous man, midway between the sex organs and the anus. It represents the midpoint of the body, placed between the up and the down, the left, the right and the left, and the front and the back. It is also one of the most important of all the plexuses known in Hindu esoteric physiology as the Muladhara Chakra the basal plexus, and is regarded as a platform for the performance of the most secret occult operations. In this region, according to yoga, there glows the ember of a mystic fire, the seed spark of a strange force called Kundalini, metaphorically likened to a tiny serpent which lies curled up in three and a half coils, fast asleep. As it sleeps, it breathes and sends gentle pulsations, rippling up the axis along which the other plexuses are situated and gently activates them. (sighs) The kundalini is generally quiescent throughout a man's lifetime, which is as it should be because it is considered extremely dangerous to tamper with the force. 
It can, however, be aroused by special methods involving breathing exercises, bodily stances, and yogic spells, all of which, if undertaken, should be done under expert guidance. When it awakens, it trembles all over, unwinds its coils, and is poised and ready to move. It can sometimes be inadvertently aroused, in which case the prompt advice of an occultist versed in these matters should be sought. To arouse it properly takes much time and considerable training, and any amateurish attempts to do so will either end in failure or result in a disastrous and uncontrollable upsurge of energy which can disrupt the psyche, the hazards of hurried apprenticeship and misapplied knowledge are very real. In Hindu esoterics, the Kundalini is a fire force. This means that its power, when controlled, can be helpful, but when uncontrolled, destructive. For it can rampage through the body, causing physical, mental, and psychic devastation. The serpent power, as it is called, manifests in lights and flames and intense heat and also strange sounds. The Irish poet and mystic George William Russell, also known as A.E., speaks of an experience he had when he once awoke the inner fire within himself. He seems to have opened the seals of a cosmic fountain, as a result of which he had the sensation, as he describes it, of plumes of fire jetting from fountains within, feathers of flame, or dragon-like crest. The fire ran up like lightning along the spinal column, and my body rocked with the power of it, and accompanying it was a sensation of fiery pulsations, cascades of flame, and the clashing of cymbals. But recalling the danger of misdirecting the energy, he calmed himself and did not guide the fire. When properly awakened, on the other hand, the kundalini begins its ascent through the chakras one by one at each stage, causing the chakra it pierces to blossom forth and infuse the adept with fresh awareness. This goes on until it reaches the topmost chakra in the cranium, known as the Sahasrara, or the lotus with the thousand petals. The union of Kundalini and Sahasrara is said to provide an experience that is literally out of this world and altogether beyond description. Alongside the basal chakra lie the sexual chakras, connected with the genitals. The sexual organs have a vast mystique of their own, which is found in all parts of the world. In early societies, they were believed to be under the control of spirit entities who presided over their activities. Phallus and vagina were linked by invisible bonds to the cosmic process of copulation ritually carried out.
uh, and copulation ritually carried out was converted into a magical act. This was the basis of sexual mysticism as practiced in China, India, and the Middle East, and in contemporary cults in the West that still perpetuate these traditions. In the Hindu system, the male chakra lies at the root of the penis. The next plexal region in order of ascent is the epigastrium, which extends from the sternum or breastbone to a point just above the navel, but is sometimes applied to a larger surface of the abdomen as well. It contains three plexuses, of which the most important is the solar plexus a great octopus-like formation of nerves, which rules part of the sympathetic nervous system. The epigastrium is an extremely sensitive area and is believed to be associated with the cerebral and cardiac functions as well. Hence, it is known as the abdominal brain. In colloquial Arabic, it is called the mouth of the heart. Many cases of the transposition of the senses in which the normal functions of the sense organs seem to get mixed up center around the epigastrium, as when a blindfolded person will hear, see, taste, and smell objects presented to the area of his stomach, this curious phenomenon was noted by the early magnetizers, the 18th century pioneers in hypnotism, and still occurs in people of hysterical character. In his book on the human double, Ralph Shirley reports, the case of a man who said that while he was in the astral body in a strange house, a ray of light emitted from my epigastrium, which illuminated the objects in the room. Somewhat to the left of the epigastric region lies the spleen. This organ, about five inches long, is well supplied with nerves, lymphatic and blood vessels, and, like most other organs to which occultists attach special importance, is still something of a mystery. Its exact purpose and function are even now not fully understood. It has some of the qualities of an endocrine gland, since it has an internal secretion which it pours direct into the bloodstream, but as far as we know today, the spleen itself can be completely removed without impairing the general health of the physical body. For some reason, it gets enlarged in certain diseases like malaria, typhoid, syphilis, tuberculosis, rickets, and pernicious anemia. Occultists state that the spleen is the reception center for the solar breath and that it stores a kind of radiatory energy which it transmits to all parts of the body. There is, says the theosophist Alice Bailey, a close connection between the spleen and the top of the head in connection with the etheric body. 
The radiatory energy is received at the top of the head and from there directed to the rest of the body via the spleen. A French physical researcher, H. Durville, lists the spleen as one of the points from which the astral body leaves the physical on projection. Still higher up in the region of the chest and throat lie a number of other plexuses, each performing separate functions and each, in the occult view, a vortex of specialized energy. One is situated in or near the heart, another in the neck, behind the throat, at the juncture of the spinal column and the medulla oblongata, and a third between the scapulae. Of the last mentioned, Alice Bailey says, the main center for the reception of prana, vital breath, is a center between the shoulder blades. The heart chakra is usually dealt with very briefly in occult manuals as if it were safer left to its function of keeping the physical body alive and not put to other use. Exteriorization methods involving the heart chakra are, however, not unknown. The 16th century Italian mathematician, inventor, naturalist, physician, and philosopher Jerome Cardan may have hit upon such a method. He claimed that he had the power of leaving the body at will, going into a kind of ecstasy, and crossing the boundary of his physical senses. He first detached his other body from the region of his heart accompanying the accompanying sensation being that of his breast splitting open as if his soul were about to withdraw it was like opening a door to see off a guest a feeling of painful numbness would spread over his whole body and thereafter he was out of himself finally the head contains several major plexuses all located in the brain which is the control room for the whole body apparatus. One is the pineal gland, a small endocrine body the size of a pea and shaped like a miniature pine cone, whence its name. It is situated near the middle of the skull, not far from the pituitary gland, and is concerned with the third ventricle, which supposedly governs reason and judgment. The precise function of the pineal gland has not yet been medically established, but it is believed to be connected with the development of early sex feelings. John Bleibtro says that if ecstasy has any biochemical basis, it is becoming increasingly difficult to avoid the conclusion that these substances controlling both its sexual and transcendental manifestations are probably manufactured in the pineal gland. The pineal gland was well known to the ancients who referred to it, to it as the seat of the soul. The Greek anatomist Herophilus, uh, founder of the medical school of Alexandria, described the pineal as a sphincter which regulates the flow of thought. The French philosopher René Descartes maintained that there was a non-spatial mind infusing the body through the brain and suggested the pineal gland as the rendezvous of mind and matter. 
Madame Blavatsky spoke of it as the abode of the sidereal spirits of man. A number of modern exponents of astral projection have alluded to excuse me, the pineal doorway through which the incorporeal self comes and goes as it enters and leaves the body and to the audible click in the head like that made by a door as it opens and shuts that accompanies exteriorization. Some people have reportedly actually um, being eased out of the body by first relaxing and then mentally focusing on the pineal gland. Even if taken in a figurative sense, this association between the pineal gland and the astral body is suggestive. Oliver Fox, speaking from personal experience, said that with some practice, he found he could control his dreams and participate in them. When having such lucid dreams, he was always conscious of a pain at a point in the head, which he assumed was the pineal gland. As the pain subsided, he would hear a click, after which his consciousness would be wholly transferred to the location of his dream. He could then rise in the air and float through walls. Certain occultists have believed that the pineal gland is in fact the seat of the third eye, even though it is set further back than the point where the eye is supposed to be. Biologically, the pineal gland is regarded as an evolutionary relic of a third eye, and indeed such a vestigial third eye, even known as the pineal eye, is still found in certain lizards of which one class survives in New Zealand. In man, the third eye is invisible and intangible and is said to occupy a position near or within the pineal gland. This invisible organ of perception is situated further back in ordinary people, but when developed by occult training, it moves forward to its traditional place in the middle of the forehead, where it becomes visible to other advanced adepts. Finally, the brain itself is a plexus. No other material substance on earth is so highly complex and organized. Its work includes the control of every single physical and physiological activity, the heart, lungs, digestion, temperature, circulation, metabolism, sexual activity, are all regulated from the central directorate. It is also said, excuse me, to control consciousness and the process of thinking, feeling, and willing. An older school of phrenologists tabulated over 30 separate mental functions and faculties and localized them in various parts of the brain. The possession of a particular faculty caused the development of the related area in the brain. I'm sorry, yeah. And, Uh, the possession of a particular faculty caused the development of the related area of the brain, and this molded the shape of the skull and produced a bump in that region, so that by feeling the bumps on the head, the phrenologist could tell which faculties were more highly developed. The local part of the back of the head was the area of philoprogenitiveness, or love of offspring, and if that had a pronounced bump, the expert could con confidently affirm that the person was fond of children. 
James Braid, the Scottish magnetizer who studied phrenology, wrote that once when he magnetized, that is hypnotized, a patient and pressed the bump or organ of veneration situated on top of the head, an altered expression of countenance took place, a movement of arms and hands which became clasped. Then the patient arose from the seat and knelt as if engaged in prayer. A more modest version of brain mapping is now accepted by the, most brain surgeons. And the areas have been located that are said to control sight, hearing, touch, taste, muscular movement, and muscular movement. This is apparently uh, supported by the fact that when a particular area in the brain is damaged, the related sense or organ is affected. But here, too, brain specialists have their reservations. It has been established that substantial portions of the brain may be cut out with no appreciable disturbance to the motor, sensory, or intellectual functions. Patients who have undergone such operations as leucotomy or lobotomy, where certain fire brain fibers are cut, or even hemispherectomy, involving the removal of the entire right or left hemisphere, are still able to talk, walk about, and do mental work. In many cases, injury to other parts of the brain, including the cerebellum, or the removal of large areas of the cortex, or thinking brain, does not prevent a person from living a normal life. Dr. Wilder Penfield, director of the Montreal Neurological Institute of McGill University and one of the world's foremost brain surgeons, after noting that many patients functioned without any loss of their former abilities following surgery, in which considerable portions of their brains had been removed, concluded, perhaps we will always be forced to visualize a, a spiritual element of different essence, capable of controlling the mechanism of the brain. The center of bodily consciousness is the brain, we are told, but whole areas of human experience appear to be independent of it. The brain, as J.B. Priestley expressed it, is in the cognitive and not the precognitive business. As we shall see, there is evidence to show that a kind of thinking and feeling is possible totally outside the physical radius of our brain and body. Perhaps the cerebral system has extensions of which we are not aware. The construction of the brain has no relationship to its alleged functions. Our prehensile fingers are clearly meant for grasping, the mechanism of the muscles for moving, the translucent eyes for receiving light, the shell-like funnel of the ears for registering sounds. But if we did not know it, what function would we assign to the repulsive matter we call the brain? It has a decidedly unpleasant appearance, and the very sight of it can give people nausea. But somewhere deep within it lies a great unsolved mystery. It has been called a science fiction organ, spreading its antennae into dimensions outside our own. A medical friend of Lord Getty's, after an astral experience when near the point of death, reported, Our brains are in our end organs projecting, as it were, from the three-dimensional universe into the psychic realm. Excuse me, and flowing from it into the fourth and fifth dimensions. And he went on to describe how he saw around each brain what seemed to be a cloud-like condensation of the psychic stream. In occult physiology, the most important plexus lies at the crown of the head, at a spot which was believed in many primitive societies to be the point where the soul first enters the body at birth and through which it departs at death. 
the meeting place of the three major bones composing the skull, medically known as the bregma or fontanelle, is situated approximately in the center of the cranium, in the fetus of the newborn infant, and uh, in the fetus and the newborn infant, the bregma is open. Since the frontal end, the right and left parietal bones are not quite joined, so that the spot is still soft to the touch. This, in popular folklore, is said to be because the soul is still in the process of settling into the body and is half in and half out. In some accounts, the soul never wholly enters the body, even in adults. The French philosopher Plutarch, who is also a hierophant in a temple and an initiate into the mysteries, wrote that a part of the psyche or soul was half submerged in the physical and tainted by it, while the incorruptible part, the nose, hangs above the head like a cord, the lower end touching the top of the skull, which was thus the point of contact between the two worlds of matter and spirit. The natives of the Solomon Islands believed that at death a man's, a man's soul ascended to the top of the head preparatory to its departure and left the body by an exit in the skull. After a few days post-mortem trepanning or boring a hole in the skull, such as was practiced in antiquity from Scandinavia to southern Africa, and the cracking of the skull as in Hindu cremation rites, fulfilled a similar purpose, that is, to allow the soul to make its exit through the aperture provided. According to Tibetan belief, the soul of a deceased person takes its departure by way of the brain, and the priest attending to the dying person plucks a few hairs from the top of the head to facilitate the release of the soul from the body. Yogic exercises like bending the head forward between the knees or standing on the head are meant to direct the bodily are meant to direct the bodily fluids to the top of the skull. In Western esoteric physiology, too, the cranium was regarded as the seat of a power, which was said to be located in the ventricles, the hollow spaces in the brain, filled with cerebrospinal fluid. There are seven such ventricles, but Albers, Albertus Magnus, the great theologian, and other medieval mystics gave preeminence to three, which were presumed to govern imagination, reason, and memory. From these ventricles, ah, there filters down a celestial dew called Ros. I'm going to fall asleep. A fluid referred to in occult manuals under various names from China to Peru, often in mystical terms. Kabbalistic texts say that the head of, a, a head of man is filled with crystalline, crystalline dew, and from the downflowing of this dew, the dead are raised up in the world to come. Hindu esoteric physiology speaks of a chakra, already mentioned above, that lies partly within and partly outside the head, called the sahasrara, the lotus of a thousand petals. It distills the nectar of immortality which seeps into the brain, but most of it, unfortunately, expends itself without being used. In Chinese yoga, ah, uh, Vitality and spirit produce in the head an ambrosia they call kan lu, which seeps via the mouth into the body and nourishes the immortal seed. But here again, most of it is dissipated because men are ignorant of its, of its existence and do not know how to retain and use it. Taoist sects in China and followers of tantric cults in India... <sighs> 
are almost obsessively concerned about this wasteful expenditure of the precious fluid and have devised some curious exercises and techniques to arrest the waste and reabsorption and reabsorb the ichor in order to vitalize the physical frame and thus, in the words of the adepts, destroy death. Further reading, Besant, Hall, Powell, Russell, and Woodruff.